This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, working out the season that the dinosaurs perished. And how warmer nights are affecting wildfire intensity. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichow. One day, 66 million years ago, a meteor around 10 kilometres wide hit the Earth and led to one of the most famous mass extinctions, the event that marked the end of the time of the dinosaurs and the start of what some call the Age of Mammals. But a question you might not have asked about that dramatic day was, what time of year was it? Well, now we may have an answer thanks to a new paper in Nature. I called up one of the authors, Melanie During, to find out more, and started by asking a very important question for any paleontologist. What is your favourite dinosaur and why? Oh my gosh, I don't have one. I've always refused to have a favourite dinosaur. No, because the thing is, I love them all, and I love the forgotten animals that live alongside them, perhaps even more. I can never devote all my love to just one dinosaur. That is fair enough. So, dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs, I should say, went extinct in a mass extinction event around 66 million years ago, which was coupled with an asteroid impact. And in a new paper in Nature, you claim to have pinned down this event to a specific season. So first of all, I was wondering, why is that something you'll be interested in finding out? What season it was when this mass extinction event occurred? Well, there's one thing that you need to keep in mind when we speak about the season of the impact. Because the season in the Northern Hemisphere is always the exact opposite of the season in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's, it's actually seasons, but that's not such a catchy title. So we stuck to one. So the thing is that, of course, it matters. 
because the impact was gonna happen. And there's a large concatenation of dramatic events that happen when the impact occurs. So the impact occurs and you get all of these dramatic effects. But the first one is the worst. You've, you get the actual impact, you get the infrared radiation. Literally being on the surface will kill you. So then the season suddenly matters, because if you're below ground, you at least survive that first blow. And the thing about the extinction, as you mentioned, it kills the non-avian dinosaurs. It is a very specific extinction. If you compare this extinction to the other extinctions, and you take the tree of life, and then literally it's like a branch gets cut off suddenly. Whereas, generally speaking, this affects more than one group. This is such a specific extinction that maybe the season matters. So spring or summer, when most animals are above ground eating, is a much more risky season than autumn or winter, when animals are below ground, and even plants have already shed their leaves. So they're a lot less vulnerable. So, for example, in winter, say, an animal might be hibernating underground to survive, and, and that might coincide with a meteor impact. So I guess, yes, it does matter. So to figure this out, you looked at the fish that died on the day of the impact. Now, you're going to have to walk me through this a little bit. For a start off, how do you find fish that died on the specific day of the impact? So the fishes were found with impact ferals in their gills. And these impact ferals, they have a fallback time to Earth of 15 to 30 minutes after the impact. And because these fishes were found with the impact ferals in this deposit, we can tell that they died there and then and were likely even buried alive. And when you say impacts fell, is, is that just the sort of debris that was thrown up by the impact? Yeah, exactly. Because the, the meteorite struck with such force, earth rock was flung out into space. It crystallized in low gravity conditions and then rained back down to earth. And we can recognize them very well because they are often hollow in the center or they have a glassy core. And that's because they crystallize in zero gravity. Everything that crystallizes on earth has their lightest elements come to the top. If something crystallizes in space, it stays in the center. So you've got these rocks that have been thrown up by the meteor. They've gone up into space, they've crystallized, and then they've come back down and impacted these poor fish. And then with these fish, you looked at their bones. And so from their bones, you were able to tell what season it was when they died. How did you do this? So bone growth is very comparable to trees. So you have to imagine like this, when, when bone growth for a new year starts, it actually starts by stopping. That sounds really weird, but growth is so minimalized up to absent in the winter months that when the growth starts again in spring, the first thing it does is it deposits a line of arrested growth. The literal separation between, okay, here's where growth ended and then starts again. So that's what happens in spring. And then in spring bone cells start to be created and they are more abundant when there is more food. So it's always spring and summer because then they're eating. And in summer, there's generally speaking a little bit more, weather is better. You've got the, the whole food chain working with you towards summer. So everything's eating more and more and more. And you, so you've got a high peak in bone cell size and density around the summer. And then you get to autumn and in autumn, the food availability drops down again. The weather doesn't become so favorable. And then 
you see that the growth is slowing down and then you get lamellar bone growth. That's like a really slow form of bone growth. So you get a couple of lines of lamellar bone growth until winter, then nothing happens until spring. And then first you get the line of arrested growth again, and then the bone cell production starts again. And so given all this, you've got your fish bones, you've got all your data, you brought it all together and you come down on it's spring. Spring in the Northern Hemisphere is when this is happening and uh, I guess autumn in the Southern Hemisphere. What does this all tell us about this mass extinction event? I think that what it tells us is that we need to start looking into a behavior of latest Cretaceous fauna and flora, of course, but particularly fauna. Because I think that the groups that were capable of, I would call it torpor or hibernation or estivation, so being able to just shelter in place, shut down most of your vital functions down to a minimum and just hang in there until the situations improve. There's many groups that are capable of that. And I don't think it's a coincidence that most of them survived. And I think it's a good idea to start looking into such behavior in latest Cretaceous fauna. That is, of course, something that was not in the scope of this study. But I, I think that this study certainly helps direct future research into the end Cretaceous extinction. So things that were able to be dormant, like hibernating mammals, may have been more likely to have survived. So what's next for this research, or where do you think this needs to go next? I would look for patterns in hibernation. Look at those who would go into burrows, because I think it's as simple as this. When the meteorites struck, unless you were underground, you were dead to begin with. That was Melanie During of Free Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands and Uppsala University in Sweden. For more on this story, there's a news article that you can check out. There'll be a link to that and to the paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing how warming nights are increasing the duration and intensity of wildfires. Right now, though, it's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. The gender pay gap tends to shrink when you tell workers what their colleagues earn. Some activists have suggested that implementing pay transparency when employees know each other's salaries might help to close the gender pay gap by putting pressure on employers to provide equal wages. Now, researchers have put the theory to the test. They assembled a dataset of roughly 100,000 academics in eight US states and compared the salaries of men and women that switched to transparent pay. They found that after the policy was introduced, there was an associated rise in the wages of underpaid women relative to men, and the gender pay gap closed by 2 to 6 percentage points. The researchers also found that the relationship between academic performance, like numbers of papers published, and salary was weakened after the transition to pay transparency. You can read more about these findings in Nature Human Behaviour. Did you know that King Tut had a dagger formed from a meteorite? Well, he did, and researchers have now delved deeper to discover more about how the pharaoh's knife was forged. Chemical analysis of the iron dagger found in King Tutankhamun's tomb suggested that an iron-nickel meteorite was the probable source of the blade's metal. But that posed a conundrum, as King Tut reigned in the 14th century BC, before ironworking was common in Egypt. Now researchers have used an X-ray fluorescence technique to map the knife in new detail. They found that the nickel was distributed in a crosshatch pattern, typical of a group of meteorites called octahedrites. But for the blade to have retained this pattern, 
they say it must have been forged at relatively low temperatures. Additionally, the elemental composition of the decorative hilt suggested that stones were glued on with lime plaster, which was also uncommon in Egypt at the time. All this led the authors to speculate that the dagger was foreign, and might even be a knife mentioned in an ancient diplomatic correspondence, a gift to Tutankhamun's grandfather from an Anatolian king. You can read more in Meteoritics and Planetary Science. Next up on the show, we're going to be talking about wildfires and how climate change is affecting their intensity and efforts to control them. Now, this is something we've looked at on the podcast before, but last week a paper was published in Nature which looked at the subject from a different angle, namely how changes to the climate at night are affecting wildfires around the world. To find out more, I called up Jennifer Balch from the University of Colorado Boulder in the US. I started by asking her the role that nighttime plays in fire progression. So the night is really important for fire because as the sun sets, there's a drop in temperatures and there's also a reaccumulation of moisture that happens. And that's really important for determining how dry fuels are on the ground. And so there is a natural slowing and dampening of fires that happens at night. And why have you looked at nighttime specifically? And what was the question you were trying to answer? So there has been a lot of work looking at the effects of maximum temperature and essentially the gas pedal is on fires um, in many places around the world. But we haven't looked as much at the breaks on fires. And so simultaneously to warming temperatures changing the maximum temperatures, we're also seeing changes in the minimum temperatures around the world as a function of global warming. And so this study was really trying to take a deep dive into those breaks on wildfires and looking at how fires progress over a 24-hour period and not only a single 24-hour period but across the entire life of a wildfire event because very often fires will go for many days or weeks at a time. And so what we tracked was essentially how fire was behaving on an hourly basis from day to night, from day to night, from day to night until that event ended. How did you go about trying to figure this out? I know central to your work is something called vapour pressure deficit, VPD. How does that fit into the story? Yeah, so vapor pressure deficit, it combines temperature and humidity variables together to essentially say, okay, how much moisture could the atmosphere hold in a given temperature? For example, if you walk into a hot, dry desert, VPD is really high because the atmosphere can hold a lot of moisture. It's really hot and there's virtually no moisture in the air already. Versus if you go into a swampy, hot system, there's already a lot of moisture in the atmosphere. And so it has a hard time pulling more water and more moisture out of the underlying fuels that are on the ground. And how have you fit that into your work? And how have you looked globally at VPD changes over time? So the way that we were able to track VPD's influence on fire at night is essentially we looked at the minimum vapor pressure deficit and said, okay, how is that minimum changing? And that minimum VPD often occurs at night. We start to see the lowest temperatures and the highest humidity values somewhere in the very early morning hours when it's still dark and moisture has reaccumulated into fuels. And so we essentially tracked minimum vapor pressure deficit on a 24-hour period across the last 40 years. And what we found was that it's increased by 25%. 
And what that means is it's reflective that our nights are getting hotter and drier as a function of the increase in temperature globally. And then we also looked at how that was related to individual fire events and how we were seeing fire behavior change on an hourly basis. And we saw the amount of active fires detected by satellites essentially tracking VPD really closely. And we did this for over 80,000 fires across the world. And we then looked at, okay, how is the intensity of fire changing at night? And globally, fires are essentially putting out more heat or they're getting more intense. Jennifer, one of the things that stood out to me in your paper is that you saw that there are some nights where it never really got cool enough or moist enough to stop fires in their tracks. What sort of numbers did you see there? Yeah, so we found that more than a fifth of the burnable world has seen a a week-long increase in the number of flammable nights. And so what that means is our fires can burn for longer periods. And we've seen that play out in our fire seasons, for example, across the Western United States, where in the past couple of years, we've had very long burning wildfires. So for example, the Cameron Peak Fire in Colorado started in August and burned all the way through until December 2nd when snow finally put that fire out. So the ability of that fire to move from day to night to day to night to day to night for weeks and months on end to me is an indication that we're losing the night breaks on wildfires. And it seems like in your analysis that places like the Western United States were maybe disproportionately affected compared to other places in the world. So the effect of increasing VPD is not a uniform blanket across the planet. There are places in the world that are seeing more or less increase in minimum VPD. And there's a couple places that are particularly important. You know, one is the Western U.S. and the other is in the northern latitude evergreen forest systems. So a huge swath of our planet in northern latitudes has seen a 10% increase in fire intensity in just the last 18 years in the fires that are burning at night. I mean, if we're seeing this increase in potential nights where fires are more likely to keep burning in different parts of the world, what do you think this means for efforts to contain things like wildfires? Have you spoken to any firefighters about your work? Yes. In fact, since this paper came out just in the last couple of days, I've heard from several folks in the firefighting community and not just here where I live in the Western U.S., but also in Australia, saying that this is completely consistent with their experience. And essentially what the firefighting community has observed, you know, and the brutality of this is that they're exhausted because they are fighting fires 24-7. They don't get the, the fire's slowing down or cooling off at night. So they're not getting a break. And frankly, with warming and with anthropogenic climate change, we're just asking too much of our firefighters. I mean, what happens now then? I mean, you've shown this work saying that night times are changing. Where do we go now? What happens next? So I do expect that we're going to see more fires and more extreme fires in the next couple of decades. And we have to rethink you know, where we're putting homes and where we're putting people in flammable places. And I've done work that showed in the U.S. more than a million homes were within wildfire boundaries over the last two decades. And there are another 59 million homes that were within a kilometer. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and we experienced the most devastating wildfire in Colorado's history on December 30th. The Marshall Fire burned more than a thousand homes 
literally in my backyard, I could see the fire burning from a hill just behind my house. And it's one thing to study wildfires for 20 years, but it's a whole nother thing to see it in my own backyard and to have colleagues and friends lose homes. You know, essentially this paper is adding additional evidence to the fact that we need to be worried about our fire risk and we need to rethink how we're building into flammable places. That was Jennifer Balch. Look out for a link to her paper in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Ben, what have you found for us to discuss this time? Well, I've got a story that I read in Science, and it's describing how the escape of some fluorescent fish in Brazil has got some researchers worried. I take it from this, then, that these fish are somewhere they're not really supposed to be? Yeah, absolutely right. And in this case, we're talking about zebrafish that have been engineered to glow red and green. And these fish are about as long as a matchstick, and zebrafish are used a lot in research. And fluorescent zebrafish were initially made for research, but in the kind of early 2000s, they were sold for commercial purposes, you know, for people to have it at home in their aquariums. And apparently they've escaped from some fish farms and are living and thriving in the creeks in this area called the Atlantic Forest in the east coast of Brazil. Right, okay, but these are obviously engineered fish they're not necessarily supposed to be there so are they having some impact on the wildlife around there well this is a big question nick and i think it's an important question to ask and from what i understand this is a very rare example of where an engineered animal has become established in the wild and one of these fish was found in a water course in florida in the u.s a while ago but it was only one and researchers think that predators probably took care of it because they're you know pretty easy to spot let's be honest but in brazil levels of predatory fish seem to be lower in these areas so they're not keeping numbers in check and so the researchers behind this work have been sort of working out what's been going on and these fluorescent fish it turns out have been breeding year round and also they've been eating a lot of things in the area so insects and algae and zooplankton But in terms of what effect that's actually going to be having, well, that's kind of up in the air, to be honest with you. As we know, ecosystems and biomes are really kind of in a delicate balance. And so what happens as these fish continue to breed and and their populations expand is unknown. Now, some researchers are saying, well, if they do go into other areas, the same thing might happen that will happen in the US and predators will just eat them. But others are saying, well, you know, I think we need to keep a close eye and, and see what's going on here. So what happens now with these fish? Well, again, it's a kind of a question mark, to be honest with you. But in the paper, they do put forward some management practices to try and stop these escapes happening. And what's interesting is this article says that there's a ban on the sale of these fish in Brazil, but local fish farms keep breeding them and they are for sale apparently in stores all over the country. So preventing this happening and preventing colonisation of other parts of Brazil seems to be a really, really important thing. But that's my story this week. Nick, what have you brought to the briefing chat? Well, we can stick in South America and unfortunately stick with other ecological concerns. I've been reading about an oil spill in Peru, off the coast of Peru, and I was reading about that in Nature. Right, and that doesn't sound like good news at all. No, I mean, the tagline for this article is scientists are appalled at the environmental damage and the situation is still evolving, but it could be anywhere up to 10,000 barrels of oil have been spilled off the coast. And one of the really devastating aspects of this is that the oil has spread into free marine protection areas And so there could be many animals and many fish that are affected by this. 
And what do we know then about when this bill happened and maybe why it happened? So this happened on the 15th of January, which you may actually remember was when a volcano erupted near Tonga. Now, this is 10,000 kilometres away from where this occurred. But the oil companies say that the waves as a result of this explosion caused a tanker that was pumping oil into a refinery to get thrown about and caused the oil spill. Now, this claim is still under investigation. So the National Maritime Authority of Peru will investigate that claim and see how that pans out. But that's what we know at the moment. And Nick, you say there that the article says scientists are appalled at the ecological damage. What are we seeing then? What what damage has been observed thus far? Well, many birds have been killed already. Many more are covered in oil and many, many fish will have been affected by this. And what's really concerning is that many birds fish off the coast of Peru and so even if they're not affected by the oil directly they'll eat contaminated fish and that could again affect them so there are estimates saying that you know hundreds of thousands of birds could be affected as it spreads and it's really quite a disaster for Peru as a country as well because it's a fishing country a lot of people rely on fish for their livelihoods and this could have a significant impact on many people's livelihoods. So it seems to me that there could be quite a long tail then in terms of ecological damage to the environment and to people's livelihoods. What happens now? Well, Peru is no stranger to oil spills. There were several a few years ago. And so with this one, which could well be the largest one that has been seen, many scientists are pushing for an end to the reliance on oil and a push away from fossil fuels because it's a very high risk activity and we can produce energy from different sources well let's leave it there then for this week's briefing chat and listeners to learn more about those stories and how to sign up for the nature briefing check out the links in the show notes that's all for this week but if you can't wait until we're back next week you can reach out to us we're on twitter at nature podcast or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com i'm nick petrich and i'm benjamin thompson thanks for listening Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.